go to Numbers chapter 13 as we continue our study through the book of Numbers together. We come now to chapter 13 and these in some ways may be very familiar chapters. Numbers chapter 13 and 14 record probably one of the top few if you were to kind of rank the top few blunders uh, of the nation of Israel these chapters probably would rank in there uh, as they record for us the children of Israel coming to the edge of the promised land this land that God intended to bring them into this land where God wanted to bless them and let them experience uh, his best for them and how unfortunately through unbelief and doubt and questioning God's promise to them questioning the word of God in the sense living and walking by sight rather than by faith uh, they hedge on God's promise they hold back on obeying the Lord uh, and quite a disaster uh, ends up being the outcome as the result of that. Now, let, let me just say a thing or two on the, the front side of this as we go into these chapters. Uh, as the children of Israel, and again, the book of Numbers records the journey, the wandering and journeying through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. It's not until the book of Joshua that they actually literally do then enter into the promised land itself and begin to experience it and to possess it and to engage in the battles of the different people that are there to make conquest of the land and take territory little by little that God wanted to give them it's important to realize when you look at the promised land in the scripture uh, that that really is intended to be a type of the life lived in the spirit for us as a Christian uh, sometimes we listen to some old hymns maybe that were written and some people even uh, have a perspective that the the Canaan land the promised land is a type or picture of heaven uh, I don't think that that's accurate. I mean, just if you step back from a surface point of view, uh, when you think of the Canaan land or the promised land they go into, uh, there are enemies there. Uh, there are lots of battles uh, that they have to fight. Uh, there are victories and defeats. There are all kinds of difficulties and hassles that they have to deal with. And that in and of itself right there tells me, uh, I sure hope heaven ain't like that. I'm hoping that when we get to heaven, there's a cessation of battles. There are no more enemies to deal with. Uh, that it's a place of, of, you know, of, of what God intended the internal bliss and describes it to be in the New Testament is going to be like. So uh, what the land of Canaan pictures and going in and experiencing the, the land of Canaan that God promised them is a picture of the life lived in the spirit as a believer uh, that after God saves us that he then intends for us to walk in the fullness of of a life lived in the spirit that's available to us through our relationship and our salvation in Jesus Christ. And that is something where we look at the promises of God spoken to us in the scripture, in the New Testament under a covenant of grace and victory over sin. But that's a process whereby we gradually make conquests. The Lord by his spirit helps us to gain a little bit of territory each step of the way and we fight battles against our sin nature and struggles and there are enemies and there's spiritual opposition and warfare but little by little hopefully we take more territory and we're beginning to experience that land flowing with milk and honey as it were spiritually in our lives where we inherit 
the blessings of God and the promises of God that are intended for us. Like Ephesians 1 describes that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. But uh, once we're saved, it's then a progressive step towards that as we enter into that and begin to actually inherit those things by faith and experience them. So just important to realize that, that from a typology perspective, that entering into the promised land is a picture of entering into the life of, walked out and lived in the spirit after we've been redeemed and after we have been saved now uh, as well as they're going into the promised land here uh, you'll see that the key protocol and issue of that is a life of faith it's faith that allows them to inherit what god has already promised to them didn't mean it would be easy didn't mean there'd be an absence of conflicts and giants to deal with and things to overcome but those things would be received by faith it was God's promise to them and they by faith would inherit those things. Again, it's even interesting when we think about it and I'm going to wrap it here and not actually get, we're going to get to the text, I promise. Uh, if you think about who ultimately takes them into the actual promised land itself, you can answer out loud and go for it. Joshua, right? Moses doesn't take them into the promised land. What does Moses represent? Moses represents the law. Joshua, whose name literally means Jehovah is salvation, which is a, a, a variation of Yeshua, Jesus, from a New Testament perspective. Joshua is the one, just how it happens to work out circumstantially, who takes them into the promised land. Moses does not, because we cannot experience the life of the Spirit by the law. And by trying to be rule keepers and following the law, that's not how we inherit the life walked out in the spirit. It is through the, the help and the deliverance and the leadership of Jesus Christ and by faith alone and following his lead that we have victory over sin, that we conquer the enemies in our life spiritually that we all still wrestle with and we inherit and experience the spiritual life that God intends for us so again just you know in, important things to recognize and to realize as we're going into this uh, that god wants us to see and to be able to grasp for our lives now uh, let's begin here in, in chapter 13 verse 1 they're now on the edge of the promised land god's redeemed them out of egypt they've spent two years sort of uh going through a process where they received instruction about how to worship god the, the instructions for the tabernacle the sacrificial system the appointment of the priesthood god's been preparing the people they've seen miracle after miracle of god's provision and god's power for them and they're now there right on the edge they're on the edge of the promised land in what we know as kadesh barnea and it's at this point, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, The Lord then spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the children of Israel of israel so it's at this point they're on the edge of the promised land itself and now this command comes to send out a group of 12 men one representative leader from each of the 12 tribes of israel it says to go in and to spy out the land of canaan god reminds them i have it circled in my bible god says which i am giving to the children of israel so he says look i'm just asking you 
Go ahead. Go and observe. Go and preview. Go and search out and look through what I have already given to you. I'm not asking you to go look at it from the perspective of, I wonder what territory God will give us and I wonder what territory God won't. God says, no, I'm giving it all to you. It's a gift from me. I've provided it for you. It's available to you. It's given to you. I'm the one that will give it to you. And he's just here at this point, allowing them to have opportunity to go in and to sort of survey the land and to look through the land. Now, just something by way of uh, sort of a little bit of insight and connection to this, just to point out to you, you don't have to turn there. Let me just read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 1 which is 38 years later, fast forward, after they wander in the wilderness for their four decades because of their unbelief, as they're then on the edge of the land again, ready to go in. And Moses is then rehearsing their history in the book of Deuteronomy with them. Deuteronomy 1, verse 20, Moses says, And I said to you, you've come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord your God is giving to us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord your God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear nor be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word of us by way of which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. And Moses said, the plan pleased me well, so I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe, and then, of course, appointed them. Now, I bring that to your attention to just allow you to see that somehow in connection to this, it actually seems, the Scripture gives commentary on Scripture, that the idea to go and spy out the land really originally wasn't God's. It was the people's. God had already told them that he was giving the land. He's told them he's going to give them the land how many times now from Genesis 1-1 to the point where we're at in the Old Testament as we study through it. When God first spoke to Moses at the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3, here was this failed man who had made a mistake and God reaches out and reveals himself to this man, Moses, who was a failure at that point in his life and says to him, Moses, I've heard the cries of my people in bondage and I am sending you to them and you're going to deliver them out of that land that they're in in bondage and slavery and you're going to bring them into a, a good and large and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So this was a part of his original call and message to go to the children of Israel with from the first day he showed up on the scene as God's anointed deliverer sent to them to bring them out of that bondage and ultimately bring them in this land. So they've always known that God would give them this land. They've always known there were going to be you know, enemies and giants and, and God knew everything about the land. So it was the people's idea to send in spies to go and survey the land. Now, the question becomes this. And again, commentators speculate. I mean, there could be some truth to it, maybe some conjecture that potentially maybe it was a good idea from a military logistical standpoint to say, hey, well, let's go up and kind of survey it and check it out. And, and it, it, that might have made sense with human reasoning. Maybe that seemed good for logistics and maneuvering, but maybe it really wasn't the best idea spiritually to go in and check out what God already said he was given to him. Because it doesn't seem like it worked out too well if you follow the course of the story that they went in and they checked out the land. It seemed that checking out the land unfortunately, ultimately caused the greater majority of the people to check out 
on God's promise and believing what God had said. Maybe it would have been better to just take God at his word and to not suggest, hey, why don't we go check out what God said he's going to do? Why don't we go test and preview and see if maybe this is really legitimate and get a better grasp? And, and see, this is like us sometimes. God tells us something that's a truth in his word, a promise in his word. But rather than just take God at his word and walk it out in faith and let God do what God said he's going to do, we, we, we kind of want to test it a little bit and we test it with an escape clause in the process. And, and we want to test it and go kind of check it out so that we can survey and say, okay, well, I just want to make sure that if that's what God's going to do, well, I need to be familiar with it because I need to know what's going to happen here and there and how it's going to happen. And, and I want to just make sure I, I also check the escape routes and just in case God doesn't come through I want to make sure I keep a little extra in the account or I set up an escape hatch over here and there and so I just bring this to our attention because originally it seems it was the people's idea and Moses somehow we could say you know agreed with it maybe they pressured him whatever he conceded to it and ultimately, it seems that God conceded to it. And we saw in our study last time that sometimes if we push and badger and pressure God, sometimes God will concede and say, okay, if that's what you want, remember the chapter last time we looked at? You want meat? You can have meat. You can have meat till it comes out your nostrils. And so sometimes God will make a concession within his sovereign will and plan of things. And so here God allows them to send in the spies and now we see God directing, okay, Moses, if that's what they want to do, then send men to spy out the land, send 12 men, this is what you do, but remind them, this is the land I'm giving to them. Remind them when they go in. Look, you can go look at the topography. You want to go see the topography? Go look at the topography. Do you want to go check where this is and that is and see the different cities and preview it? That's fine. Let them do that, but let them know all they're doing is seeing what I am already giving to them. So at this point now, they assemble these 12 men to send them in and to survey the land as representatives for the people. Verse 4 now gives us the names of those 12 men. It says, Of the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zachar, went. From the tribe of Simeon, it was Shaphat, the son of Huri. Verse 6, from the tribe of Judah, and take note of this one, you should circle verse 6 or make a note there, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of course he becomes a, a critical uh, individual out of this 12. From the tribe of Issachar, verse 7, was Egal. Verse 8, from the tribe of Ephraim, was Hoshea, the son of Nun, who ultimately is another name for Joshua, we'll see. It's told us directly down in verse 16. Uh, so Joshua and Caleb, they become the two important figures out of this group of 12. From the tribe of Benjamin, it was Palti. And from Zebulun, it was Gadiel. Verse 11, from Joseph, that is the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of uh, Susi. Uh, the tribe of Dan, Amiel. Verse 13, from the tribe of Asher was Sether, the son of Michael. Verse 14, from the tribe of Naphtali was uh, Nabi, the son of Vosphi. And from the tribe of Gad, G yeah, we're going to give up on those. <laughs> you don't know if I'm pronouncing them right anyway. I hope there's no Hebrew scholars in the house. Uh, verse 16, these are the names of the men of Moses. Uh, who Moses sent to spy out the land and Moses, there's our commentary, called Hoshea, who we read up earlier, the son of Nun, Joshua. So Moses actually changed uh, Hoshea's name uh, to Joshua. Hoshea is a term that means salvation. 
Joshua or Hoshua, Hoshia, that you add that, you're, you're putting the name of Jehovah or Yahweh on the front of it, which then means Jehovah is salvation or Yahweh is salvation. So uh, very interesting, as I said, that that ultimately becomes the name that Moses gives uh, to Hoshea, who becomes Joshua, his assistant as we know him, and the one who then is Moses' successor and the one who actually does what? takes them into the land and brings them in to inherit the promises of God and that picture again of the life of the spirit. And again, you might want to, if you're a note taker, especially writing your notes or writing your Bible here, Hebrews chapter three and chapter four, because there the commentary in Hebrews shows how these things typology wise picture what you and I are now to be experiencing spiritually in Christ, how, how, how there was a rest for the people of God that Joshua didn't bring them into that ultimately our Joshua, Jesus Christ, can bring us into as Christians. And the, the illustration is used there referring back to these stories, how we should not harden our hearts in unbelief and that we need to mingle together faith with the word of God to be able to enter into the spiritual rest that God has for us as Christians to experience that life in the spirit and the rest, the sabbatic spiritual rest that God wants us to have in our souls as we trust him by grace and live by faith in the promises and the truths of God. So, you know, chapters that give somewhat some commentary and reflection on this. So these 12 individuals are now being sent into the land Verse 17 says, Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south. So they head up from the southern border up into the mountains and see what the land is like. He says, Find out whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they're few or many. So you can survey the different populations, whether the land they dwell in is a good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or like strongholds. The idea is, you know, strong fortified cities with walls around them, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are forests there or not. And he says to them, be of good courage. No doubt, probably the spirit of God was prompting him. And isn't it interesting? I have to say this. It's almost as if God knows what's coming around the corner. Because before they even leave, God knows exactly what they're going to struggle with. So I, I just can't help but to think those four words there are prophetic. Be of good courage. Because God says, I, I know where you're going. And so he says, I want to tell you in advance, be of good courage. Don't you get discouraged because I know you're going to get afraid. As soon as you, I know what you're going to struggle with is you're going to struggle with fear. As you take the path down that road, as you go that direction, God knows in advance, I know that when you see what you're going to see with your eyes and you begin to experience certain things as you walk down that course that you're heading into, I know you're going to get afraid. And I know there are going to be things that are going to intimidate you, make you nervous, begin to make you doubt, cause you to become discouraged. So in advance, he says, don't you be afraid. Don't get discouraged. Be of good courage as you see what you see so that that fear and doubt doesn't shipwreck ultimately the purpose and plan that he has for our lives. So he says then be of good courage and then bring back also, he says, a sample. Bring back some samples, he says, some of the fruit of the land. 
Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes, which was around the August time frame that's telling us. So they went up, verse 21, and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rahab near the entrance of Hamath. Now that's a reference to being all the way up far north as far as around the, the Lebanon border. So it's letting us know here they went from south, they entered in the south and they went all the way up as far all the way from south to north in the land near the area of Lebanon. And they went up through the south, verse 22, and came to Hebron. That becomes a very critical city later on, as we'll see. Uh, the descendants of Anak, it says, were there, and it mentions three names of them. Verse 22, uh, Ahaman, uh, Shishai, and Talmai. These were the descendants of Anak that were there, and, and that's a reference we'll see later in the chapter to those who were giants. These were descendants. The descendants of Anak were those who were extremely tall genetically it seems historically somewhere between men around anywhere from 9 to 13 feet tall so I mean, these were some huge people uh what the nba would have loved to get a contract with some of these guys i'll tell you if they would have been able to get a hold of them back in that day but just a reference to some of the large uh, people that were there in the land they saw these three sons anyway and keep notice here they see three giants because watch what they say at the end of the chapter. They see three men who they knew by name were giants from Anak, but it's amazing how that gets exaggerated by the end of the chapter. Now, Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt, we're told. And they came to the valley of Eshkol, which means valley of cluster. And there they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes and they carried it between two of them on a pole. And they also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. So uh, take notice, again, a land flowing with milk and honey, a prosperous, fruitful, fertile land. So big were these grapes, just one cluster of grapes. Now, I want you to think about a cluster of grapes you buy at the Acme or the shop, right? I mean, you can carry a cluster of grapes in, in the palm of your hand there. This cluster of grapes, one cluster of grapes was so big, was so large in, in how it had been Produce, it literally took two men carrying a pole between the two of them on their shoulders to bring back one cluster. I mean, how big were these things? Like the size of softballs or whatever. I mean, that'd be really convenient for packing your kids' lunch instead of, you know, we give the kids grapes for lunch and you, you know, pick them all off and put them in a Ziploc bag. You could just stick one, one grape right there in their lunch bag and be done with that there. I mean, it'd be a, a nice thing there. So these were massive pieces of fruit which is just indicating the lushness the fruitfulness of this land and to this day still the valley of eshkol in israel is still a very fertile uh, uh, sort of a prosperous lush area in vegetation verse 24 the place was called uh, the valley of eshkol because of the cluster which the men had cut down there and they returned from spying out the land after 40 days so a little over a month they spent 40 days in total going all around the land, checking the territories, getting samples of the fruit uh, and the vegetation that was there in the lush territory. In verse 26, now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, a reference to the edge of the land. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, verse 27, and said, We went to the land where you sent us. 
and it truly, look at it, it truly flows with milk and honey and this, they show them this cluster of grapes as one sample and this is its fruit. So I want you to look what they say here. It truly flows with milk and honey. What are they saying? What God said is true. We went and saw it with our eyes. What's God been saying? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a fruitful land. It's a wonderful land. Where I'm going to bring you, it's a good and spacious and large land. It's fertile. It's fruitful. It's going to be blessed and you're going to prosper there. And, and what do they say? You know what? Everything God said is true. It's true. We saw it with our own eyes. We have to confirm, we have to affirm with our mouths that what God said is true. What God promised is accurate. Truly, it flows with milk and honey, just like God said. This is the fruit and the evidence there of it. Verse 28, here's the problem word, nevertheless. That word is circled in my Bible there because that's always where things start to go bad. The word nevertheless, spiritually, is a word that basically says, yeah, all these things, I, they're true. I've seen them and, and I, it's accurate. But forget everything that that means and forget everything I've said because this is going to steal all that away and become more important. So it's true. Everything that God said, it's true. Nevertheless, and this is where unbelief starts to deteriorate the process the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large moreover we saw the descendants of Anak there which again were giants the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan now Verse 28 and 29 is still accurate. They're not lying. They're speaking the truth. It was true that the people in the land were strong. It was true that there were some fortified cities, that there were some large cities, walled cities. Joshua chapter 6, remember? Jericho, the whole story of the wall. So what they're saying here is true. And they say, and the people there, it's, it's not a remote land. There are people everywhere. That place is already overpopulated and, the, and the, their suitcases weren't packed when we showed up. They didn't look like they were ready to just leave saying, hey, we were expecting you guys. Look, we already got our suitcases packed. Whoever wants my bed, I, you know, and you, look, the people, he says, they're everywhere. They're at the beaches and they're in the mountains and they're along the banks of the rivers and the people are, are, are strong. They're, they're, they're difficult people to deal with. And so all of a sudden now, what do they do? They begin to bring up all of the obstacles. They begin to bring up all of the realities of, yes, everything God said is true, and this seems like it would be a wonderful thing, but there's a whole lot of obstacles in the way. There's a lot of big things that we would have to overcome to experience what God says he has in store for us. And there are strong things that we don't know how in our weakness we're going to be able to overcome. And there's not just one obstacle there's all kinds of obstacles. In fact, everywhere we turn, there's, there's obstacles at the beach. There's obstacles in the mountains. There's obstacles everywhere we turn. There's something to deal with. And they say, therefore, even though what God has said is true, nevertheless, 
There are all these things that are dwelling there and they're entrenched and we don't know how we're going to overcome these problems and challenges and difficulties. And, and see, that's what, that's what the spirit of unbelief does inside of the, the heart of a human being. Unbelief says, yeah, I know God's word says. Nevertheless, there's these issues and, and there's these deeply entrenched problems that have just dwelt there in my life forever. And, and, and not just, I mean, there are so many obstacles that just would make that impossible. I mean, I understand what God's word says, and maybe that works for some people. But, but you don't know, I mean, you're not looking at the same landscape I'm looking at here in my life. And see, this is how unbelief robs us even in regards to the life of victory lived in the spirit even in relation to overcoming sin and struggles and enemies of our flesh in our life where God's word says sin shall no longer have dominion over you and God's word gives us promises to have power and victory over sin and tells us that we can walk in the spirit and not gratify the lusts of our flesh and that sin no longer has dominion over us and that we're not to let sin reign in our mortal body but that we can have victory over it and we can overcome and be set free and experience the liberty and the power and deliverance of Jesus Christ and the Bible promises us, the scripture tells us this and we say, okay, that's true and God promises that and he declares it nevertheless. You don't understand. I mean, I have had this deeply entrenched problem for so long and it's like a strong fortified city and it's been there forever and there's, I, there's just no way. That's just the obstacles. Just, and unbelief begins to cause us to look at obstacles and to believe that because that obstacle's there or how many hindrances there may be or challenges there may be to experiencing victory over sin or overcoming some area of the flesh, that somehow it's just not possible. And it causes us to begin to doubt that God's power and God's promise can come to pass because of what we see with our eyes. Or maybe God's wanting to lead us into a direction, some way or some new course or to bring us into some new thing. And God says, okay, this is where I'm leading you. And, and, and we know God's leading us in that way. And he's promised us, look, this is what I'm doing. And, and, and we're walking in faith and we get to the edge. And then when we get to the edge, we, we look out over the horizon and we go, wow. There's a lot of giants and obstacles to overcome. If you're telling me that you're taking me from here to here, how's that going to happen? And unbelief begins to cause us to wrestle in our hearts. And this is what the people are beginning to do now. They're giving report and the report starts to turn south because of the what I call the thief of unbelief. And that's what unbelief does. It robs us. It's a thief. It's the thief of unbelief. I really believe that you know, it's almost like there's this invisible sniper spiritually that exists in, in, in the ranks of the church that is just picking people off among the Christian body with unbelief. And there's this invisible sniper who just perches himself up where he does and maybe in the, the corner of sanctuaries or among the, you know, the assembly of God and, and he just silently and slowly just picks people off and robs the life of Christians by the evil heart 
of unbelief. This is why I told you to read Romans chapter 3 and 4 with these chapters because there the Bible actually says that. Don't let yourself be robbed because of an evil heart of unbelief. That's a strong term. An evil heart? I mean, unbelief. I mean, look, I just doubt and I'm just... God says it's evil. God says unbelief is evil. Why? Because it robs you. It robs you because it makes you find justification or reason to live like a victim, maybe being dominated or ruled by some sin or some struggle in the flesh that you don't have to live in bondage to because Jesus can give you victory over. Again, whether that's some life-dominating habit or whether that's some root of bitterness that arises in your heart and you just can't let go and forgive something or whether it's an anger issue and whatever it may be. And unbelief and not taking God at the promise of his word is true that God has the power through the promise of what he said to us to do and give to us whatever he says to us. Unbelief can rob us of that. And it can cause us to look at the obstacles instead of looking at the God who said that those obstacles don't matter because of what I'm able to do. So verse 30 here, notice, it's almost as if you see a wrestling between the flesh and the spirit because look what happens in verse 30. Now here's the voice of, of, the voice of faith, the voice of the spirit who wants us to believe. It comes through the mouth of Caleb in our story. Verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. He interrupts and he says, wait a minute here. Let us go up at once and take possession of it for we are well able to overcome it. So Caleb pipes in, this man ultimately who took the stand of faith with Joshua, we'll see as our chapters unfold here. And he says, look, he says, the men who've gone up with him, they want to say we're not able to go up, but his simple, look, let's go up. He says, let's go for it. What did he remember? He remembered one thing. God said he'll give it to us. Look, he saw the same thing as everybody else among the group of spies. He saw all the same obstacles. He saw all the same realities. It wasn't as if he was just a dreamer. Well, did you miss that one section there, uh, Caleb? Did you, did you miss those giants? Did you, did, you, did you not see those walls? Did you, he saw all the same stuff. But what he did do is he saw obstacles as insignificant because his greater focus wasn't upon what he saw with his eyes, but his greater focus was upon God. And he believed that God was credible. And he just believed in his heart. Look, yeah, I saw the walls. I saw all the same giants. But God said he gave it to us. God said it belongs to us. And I think that God's a little bit taller than that giant, at least by a foot or so. I think he's a little bit stronger than even the strongest warriors and fortresses. And, and so he says, look, let's go for it. Let's not overthink this. Let's not get ourselves caught up in trying to analyze too much. Let's just, let's, let's rush in on it, man. Let's do it. Let's step forward in faith. Let's take God at his word and take possession of what God has promised and, and inherit the blessings and promises of God. He says, we're able to overcome it. Why? Not in their own strength but because God had said that they could overcome and that God would give it to them. So he speaks with a voice of faith. And again, it's interesting to see that comparison because when we go through experiences like this and as we're walking out even our own spiritual life, that I don't know about you, but that's always what happens to me. I always have both going on. 
There's the voice of unbelief, like this first group of the spies who were pointing out all the obstacles and hindrances and the reasons why it can't, and nevertheless, and yeah, but nevertheless, but I mean, yeah, but nevertheless, I mean, you got it. And then there's always the stirring of God's Spirit, which is the voice of faith that wants to put up the shield where the sniper of unbelief is trying to fire and, you know, and, and pick me off and, and says, no, this can be done. What does the Bible say? With God, nothing is impossible. Jesus also said, with God, all things are possible. The, the, the key hinge there is the words, with God. A lot of things are impossible without God. Nothing, from what I've discovered in my life, seems to be possible apart from God. But with God, that changes everything. If God is in it and God is with us, that completely changes everything, no matter how big the obstacles, the financial hurdles, the problems, the struggles with the flesh, the difficulty that just seems like it's just impossible to overcome. It makes all the difference when the Lord is with us. But verse 31, again, you see the battle. The flesh and the spirit, they wrestle against one another. Verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him said, no, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. Again, that's accurate. That's accurate. It's okay to admit we're not able, they're stronger than us, but the next statement should be, however, our God will fight for us. Our God is stronger than them. Well, they're way stronger than us. Listen, I... I'm not into, you know, kind of, well, I don't know if you're supposed to say that word in the pulpit, so I won't say that word. Uh, what's the word? Like the spiritual bravado. Let me use that word. Maybe that's safe. That thinks, you know, well, I'll take on the devil. I remember one time listening to a speaker on Christian television one time that, that made this statement. I was having to be flipping through the channels and, and said something along the lines of, when I get up in the morning, I want the devil to tremble. And I'm thinking, are you joking me? When I get up in the morning, I think the devil chuckles, but I don't think he trembles. And I'd rather, when I get up in the morning, I don't want him to know I'm awake. I don't want him to tremble. I'm hoping he takes it all until 5 p.m. to even knows I'm awake yet so that he doesn't hassle me or bother me at all. I'm no match for the devil. Or his demons. Jesus is stronger. And so there's nothing a matter with admitting the people are stronger than us. But the follow-up to that must be, but our God is stronger. He who is in us is greater than he who is in this world. And because our God is with us, but see, when we forget that and we don't pay attention to that, we just in unbelief shrink back and say, we're not able. It's, we're just not able. They're too strong. Verse 32, and they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. In other words, look, you go into that land, everybody that goes in there gets destroyed. How do you know that? You've never been there. You just went and lived there for a couple of weeks. So how can you say everybody that goes in there gets devoured and destroyed? everybody who goes if you go in there you're going to get eaten up you're going to get devoured they'll devour anybody who comes into that land and all the people whom we saw in the land are men of great stature there we saw the giants the descendants of Anak and we were like grasshoppers 
in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. In other words, we were like little grasshoppers. They're giants. They'll just crush us like a bug. They'll just step on us like a bug just to obliterate and destroy us. Now, again, I want you to notice this is a a symptom of what unbelief does in our human hearts. Do you see what's happening? They're exaggerating the problem. I mean, look what they're saying. That land devours all of its inhabitants. And they say here, verse 32, all the people we saw are men of great stature like those giants. Wait a minute. How many people did they see that were giants? We swear to over? Three. Now they're saying, everybody's a giant. They're all giants. And we know this because this is how, this is how we argue, at least as married couples do. You know, your, your spouse does something one time. You always do this. How come every time this happens... Right? This is, this is the exaggeration of the flesh. All the time you... Oh, wait, no, how, I, I've done that twice now in 20 plus years. I mean, isn't that a little bit of an exaggeration there? But see, this is what we do in our humanity. And this is a symptom of, of unbelief when it begins to creep into our hearts and doubt begins to overcome us. Is Yes, there were giants. Yes, there were obstacles. But what unbelief does is it makes the obstacles bigger than what they really are. And unbelief gets us to begin to think and then to begin to articulate and to make the problem way bigger than what it really does. Again, so whether it's a struggle with our flesh, we magnify it to make it much bigger than what it is, or whether it's some you know, fears or legitimate concerns about some challenges or obstacles of a, a course or direction God's bring on. Yeah, there are some legitimate concerns, but, but all of a sudden we mushroom them and, and we make them way bigger and way more than what they really are, or we inflame the problem by the way we talk about it as a way bigger issue than what is really literally happening. And look, all that does is, I want you to think of it like a wall. All that does, as you make the wall bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, guess what it does? It makes it harder and harder and harder to see God. Because the wall just gets higher and bigger and wider and you just encompass yourself with such a wall, then you don't see God at all anymore. So this is why this is such a dangerous thing. And here they are sort of exaggerating this and going through this whole process. Now, I want you to notice here, here basically are a few of the failures that they're making in this chapter. Three things specifically. First of all, they're overanalyzing and getting paralyzed in fear. That's what's happening here. Yes, they went and they previewed the land, they saw some things, they spied it out, but then where they began to struggle, and this is what unbelief did in their heart, they began to fall into the, we say, paralysis of analysis, where they started overanalyzing everything they saw way too much, and they so overanalyzed, and well, what about that? Did you see that fortified city, and there's that beach, and and there's people over there, and and they so started overanalyzing it, that they became paralyzed and crippled in fear. And see, this can be a tendency sometimes with us where, again, nothing wrong with evaluating a situation, making an honest estimation of obstacles or legitimate things to pray about and realize, hey, this is going to have to be overcome and Lord, I just want to, you know, you're going to have to help me with this or deal with this. 
But what tends to happen is sometimes we can begin to so overanalyze things that people literally become paralyzed. Well, what about this? And what if that? And what if that happens? And, and, and well, I mean, what if that doesn't work out? And then what if this happens? And what if that happens? And what if this? And in the paralysis of analysis, you never go anywhere. You become crippled and shut down in fear because of overanalyzing it too much and it becomes a really destructive thing. So be careful of that. Some people have a real tendency towards that and they put themselves in a complete paralyzed state and fear and unbelief because they overanalyze way too far, way too much. Go way overboard with it is not healthy. Secondly, another mistake they're making here, failure, is that they're choosing to respond and live by sight and feelings rather than by faith. They're choosing to live and respond here in this story by what they can see with their eyes circumstantially and what their feelings are dictating to them by their experiences rather than living by faith. Again, what does the Bible say in the New Testament? That we walk by faith, not by sight. The just shall live by faith, not by feelings. Feelings are legitimate things. Thoughts are legitimate things. Circumstances are legitimate things. And sometimes they can be scary. Amen, I'm with you on that. I've looked at plenty of circumstances when it it was really, really scary. You know, when, when when the Lord was asking us a few years ago to make the transition to, you know, turn things over with the church we were pastoring in York and to take a step of faith and to walk away, you know, 13 years of an established ministry and friends and relationships and settled as a family and all that and to basically just depart and go start all over again and begin anew and, 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 and to do that on top of that with kids in junior high and high school and you're, and you're okay, well, how are we going to make it? How are we going to, you know, how are we going to, you know, have finances and all those logistical, responsible realities. I know for me, especially as a, as a husband and a father, were, were huge and were weighing on me. And the, the thief of unbelief was saying, God, uh, did you not pay attention to some of the, uh, Giants that that's going to mean overcoming? And, and, and you know, there were times, I, I can tell you very candidly, there were times where I sat in my office in, in, in York there, in, in the, the church office, where I sat there in my office in the midst of that process, and I literally thought to myself, I am committing familial suicide. What am I doing? Lord, I, have I lost my mind? I, I am going to destroy my family. I am going to make my kids hate me the rest of my life. I just, you know, this is not a time to sell a house. The real estate markets, this is, this is crazy. What do, I, do you not, Lord, all the blood, sweat, and tears just to get to this point? And now you're saying go start all over. And, and the feelings were there. The, the circumstances were there. What it looked like circumstantially, it didn't look easy. It was very, very, very scary. <laughs> It was, and, and it was a battle. And, and here the mistake they make is they choose to live by feelings and what they could see with their eyes instead of walking in faith and believing, hey, this is what God said. God's called us. God's promised it. God said that he will take care of it. And we have no idea how it's going to work out, but God has said it. And therefore, we're going to take him at his word. We're going to trust him. We're going to give him a chance to prove that he's God and be obedient. And the mistake they make 
is choosing to respond by faith, or excuse me, by feelings and sight rather than to live by faith. And, and the third thing in connection to this, which is what's the mistake here, is basically they forget and they ignore God's track record of faithfulness. Again, they've had two years at least of what? Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. I mean, God's track record is pretty good. It, in the way he was operating, they could step back and say, well, it's almost kind of like he's God. I mean, he's parting Red Seas and bringing plagues on our enemies and making food fall from the sky. And when we come to a bitter water source, we throw a stick in and then it becomes like sweet sugar water, Kool-Aid. You know, we're drinking water out of stagnant ponds that's healthy for us now. And I mean, God's doing miracle after miracle and they forget and ignore God's track record and his promise to them. And instead, in the present moment, they kind of just put that out of their memory banks and they're responding instead as if somehow God hasn't established his credibility. Hey, this evening, can I encourage you? I don't, you know, tonight you're a believer. You've been walking with Jesus a year, some of you five years, 10 years, some of you maybe 20 years, 30 years. Hasn't God proven to be pretty credible so far? Pretty credible? I mean, the testimonies of our lives in this room and, and see, it's that past credibility alone that no matter what my feelings are saying, no matter how scary it is, no matter what it looks like circumstantially in life, that should be the thing that is the incentive to say, you know what, if nothing else, Lord, you are worthy to be trusted because of your track record. You've been so credible. And Lord, I would dishonor you greatly to not believe you and that you're able to do this and what Lord it would be a mockery to your credibility and that's why the Lord is so disheartened and upset as the chapter goes on because it was an affront to his credibility that they wouldn't believe him and that they doubted him turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40 we're going to end here and just uh, be finished with this chapter this evening. We'll, we'll do chapter 14 next week, I think, is what we'll do. Isaiah 40. Is that what I want? Yeah, it is. Isaiah 40, verse 22. Remember what they said, the last thing we just read? We're like grasshoppers. They're going to squish us. They're big. They're like grasshoppers. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 22, regarding God. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. So they said, oh man, we're like grasshoppers. These giants are so big, we can't overcome them. They're going to squish us. What they forgot is, guess what? From God's perspective, as big as God is, God says, everything I created are like a bunch of little grasshoppers. I sit on the throne of the circle of the earth and everything I look at are like little grasshoppers to me. Look, maybe big problems, a lot of obstacles, major challenges in front of you, but you serve a big God. We serve a really big God and that's our reliance in those moments when we come to these crossroads and have to choose faith or unbelief. Let's stand together. We'll